Our sermon this morning is on Jesus and Zacchaeus from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you brought them. Prepare emotionally to follow along with the screen uh, if, you, if you didn't. We've probably all heard the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Probably all know it. Probably all know the song. Uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. It's a kid song. Uh, so it's, it's very familiar to us, maybe a little too familiar, right? Um, you know, it's maybe so familiar that for many of us, the story of Zacchaeus, um, we, we, we kind of miss its significance because we are uh, just overly familiar with it, which is something that can happen with a lot of the Bible, right? We we become, you know, it's something that's just kind of drilled. There, there's, there's value and benefit to learning the Bible as a kid. It's kind of, it sinks deep into your soul, into your consciousness. You can, uh, you know, recall it uh, later, later in life without a lot, a lot of effort, which is great. Um, but one of, the, one of the problems of becoming too familiar with the Bible too soon is that uh, it loses its bite. It loses its significance. It loses... Um, you know, the, the, the punch that it's meant to have that it would have had uh, for its first century audience, right? You know, Jesus or Adam and Eve and the, the garden, Noah and the ark, uh, you know, Jonah and the fish, Daniel and the lions, Jesus and the sycamore tree, right? These, they just become cute little stories that we associate with cartoons or, you know, the felt board uh, storytelling thing in Sunday school that kind of just become about uh, being a good person, right? Little morality tales or something like that. But in reality, the story of Jesus uh, and, the, and, and Zacchaeus is not meant to be sweet and fun. It's meant to be uh, strange and, and kind of to offend our sensibilities. It's meant to, to confront us and even shock us a little bit. That certainly is how it would have been understood by its initial, you know, kind of uh, upsetting and, and provocative. It's kind of how this story would have been received uh, in, in, its, in its time. So that's kind of our goal this morning. Our goal is to, to read a story that we're probably all familiar with, but to experience it as if for the first time and to feel some of the weight, some of the, uh, the heaviness that the story is meant to depict. And then to, to learn what the Lord would have us, uh, you know, learn from this particular passage. So, we'll read through Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, then we'll get to work. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled and they said, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning uh, asking you to bless these next few minutes. Lord, we, we recognize that this is not just any book, uh, that this is your holy word spoken to us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you to give us a holy reverence for your word. Help us to hear it and to understand it. We pray that you would illumine uh, our hearts so that we can receive it and be convicted by it and be changed by it. Lord, we don't want to be people who uh, hear the word and then leave unchanged. We want to hear the word and have the Holy Spirit conform us into the likeness and the image of Jesus through the hearing and receiving of your word. So we ask that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Verse 1, he, Jesus, entered into Jericho and was passing through. Last week, uh, we saw Jesus was arriving at Jericho, and that's when he uh, came across the, the blind beggar, uh, and that episode that happened at the end of chapter 18. Now he's entering it and passing through it. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. There's an interesting, uh, interesting kind of uh, word choice in the, in the Greek here. Uh, most of the time when you see that, that it kind of helps us understand uh, what Luke is trying to tell us about how people thought of and felt about Zacchaeus. Most of the time when you see the word man uh, in the New Testament, it's the Greek word anthropos. It's where we get the word anthropology. You can study that in college if you, you know, don't want to, you know, if you don't want a career that, you know, is going to pay anything. Uh, so, anthropos is a Greek word. It, mean, it means man, but it means, um, it, it's the, the connotation of the word anthropos in Greek is more, it's closer to human or person than it is to man. It doesn't so much mean man as opposed to woman, as much as it means man as opposed to the, the rest of the animal kingdom, or man as opposed to a plant or something else. And so it kind of, in the word anthropos, is bound up all of these connotations about being a human, being a person, having value, being made in God's image. It implies dignity and humanity and personhood. That's, that's anthropos. Then there's another word for man um, that is used, that doesn't so, uh, doesn't so much mean human being, person, dignity of God. It, it just means male. Uh, in fact, when if you read in the book of James where it says, don't be like some man who looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like, he uses the word aner, which means specifically means male. So the, James is kind of saying women, they, when they look in the mirror, that's, you know, they're looking to, they're, they're looking intently with purpose. Men look in the mirror to check their vital signs and then just move on. So says, don't be like a male who looks in a mirror like that. That's on air. So on air doesn't mean uh, you know, man as opposed to animal, plant, human being, dignity. On air means just male, a grown, like not a woman, not a child, a man. But it, it kind of lacks a lot of that theological nuance and dignity and personhood and humanity that anthropos carries with it. Luke uses the word on air here, which is fairly uncommon uh, to be used in a narrative story like this. And it's because he's trying to imply Zacchaeus was not held in high regard. 
Zacchaeus was not, he was almost seen as subhuman, less, you know, he, he's a man, we're, we're, he's a man, he's, he's not a woman, he's not a child, he's a man, but, you know, we're not going to use the word that kind of speaks highly of God's created beings in his image, dignity, worth. That's how, that's how the story kind of refers to uh, Zacchaeus, he's just a, a male, he's not a woman, he's not a child, he's a, he's a man. But Zacchaeus was also a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So now we're getting more data as to why, like, why Zacchaeus may have been hated and resented the way that he was. Because he's a tax collector. No one liked tax collectors. Again, we've probably all heard the story. Oh, like tax collector, they collect all of the taxes. Uh, and, but then they probably took more than they were supposed to, and then they kept it, and that's why everyone uh, hated them. And all of that's true. But again, it doesn't really capture the weight. It doesn't capture the entirety of the, the situation. It doesn't adequately communicate the, the emotions that people would have felt about tax collectors. And so in order to understand that, you kind of just have to understand Rome and the ancient world <coughs> in the the first century. Rome was a huge global superpower uh, headed by Caesar. And Caesar saw himself as, as a god among men, literally. Like he, you know, uh, wanted to be worshipped by people in his kingdom. He had almost unlimited power and wealth and resources. And, and Rome was just kind of under his, under his rule was just this ever-expanding uh, it was almost like the Borg from, from Star Trek, right? It's just like continually expands and everything it touches, it just absorbs into it. And now you're a part of the, the, the room. And then we're going to take this newfound momentum that we have from having absorbed you and go absorb the next one. It's just like this huge, you know, like massively expanding empire. And there was, there was literally a, an office in uh, the Roman Empire, like, like one of the officers in, in the, the army and the government was called the Roman evangelist. Um, so the word evangelism, so yeah, the, the root word of the word evangelist or evangelism uh, is evangel, which means the, the, good, the gospel or the good news. You know, in Christian circles, an evangelist is someone who goes and proclaims the gospel, tells the good news. Uh, and in, in Rome, the Roman evangelist was the person who would proclaim the good news of the gospel of Rome. The good, new, the good news of the gospel of Caesar, as it were. And essentially, he'd go, he would lead the, the army the, you know, and go into a new city, new town, new civilization and say, I've got good news. I've got good news for all of you here. You're now part of the Roman Empire. And you worship Caesar now. And if anyone ever tries to bother you, if anyone, you know, vandals come and invade, you've got the full backing of the Roman Empire. All of our armies, all of our muscle is here to protect you. How great, that's such great news. P.S. Footnote, we, like, almost all of the money that you make from here on out, we're going to take from you in taxes. You know, we're, we're um, and, and there's no, like, this isn't like a two-way street. You can't really opt out. You are, whether you want it or not, a part of our uh, a part of our empire. And if they'd say, no, we don't want to, we want to keep living our way, doing our thing, then he would say, well, you either have to pay taxes, be a part of Rome, or we're just going to kill you and, and just take everything from you. So it's this kind of like Godfather-esque 
you know, make them an offer they can't refuse and just continue to absorb more and more cities, villages, civilizations, and Rome grew bigger and bigger. And everyone hated Rome because they were being oppressed by a foreign superpower that would extort them, right? They, they would shake them down for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% of their income, and then they would use the money that they took from them to fund the army that they are using to oppress them and enforce these like exorbitant tax rates. And everyone hated Rome. And, but, but the Roman, you know, the, the Romans were smart. And so what they realized is that we have to, you know, give some to take some. We have to kind of work smarter, not harder. So they realized if we, uh, t- the best way to extract money and taxes from people in these civilizations that we absorb is to tur- is to get someone to turn state right state's evidence like is to you know if we send someone who doesn't speak their language doesn't know their culture they're going to come in and get as much money as they can from as many people given all of the muscle that they have behind them to enforce but they're you know they're not going to know who the power players are they're not going to know who the you know, people will be hiding money in Swiss bank accounts and they'll never know and be able to get their tentacles into it. Whereas if we can flip someone from within the community, they know it. They have that network already uh, established. They know who's rich and who's not, where the money is, how to get to it. And so, so that was the strategy was get a local and flip them. Make their loyalty come to Rome instead of to their own people. And so tax collectors were seen as uh, traitors to their own people. Right? Everyone has a price. So if we just pay these, like, if we can find the people that are willing to do it, we know that their own brothers <coughs> and sisters are going to hate them, but if we can pay them enough to make it worth their while, then we will will do it. And so that's kind of, that's who tax collectors were. That's kind of how they, uh, they, they, they operated. And they had free reign to take as much money as they wanted from people and just keep whatever they didn't need to pass along to Rome. So they were seen as just, you know, you have to kind of take, it's, you know, to, to understand how people felt about Zacchaeus, you have to think how we would feel about, you know, an IRS agent who's auditing you you know, and, and making you get receipts from seven years ago about caramel macchiatos. And if you don't, then they're going to charge you seven years worth of back taxes and penalties and everything else. Take all of your emotion about that guy, plus how you would feel about, you know, someone breaking into your house, holding you up at gunpoint, stealing your car, you know, ransacking your place, right? You have the, the, the emotion from that, plus the emotion from how you'd feel about, uh, you know, a, an American spy CIA agent who turns and, and becomes a double agent and starts feeding classified intelligence to our enemies. Plus, you have to take how you would feel about like a Nazi sympathizer who informs on Jewish people hiding in attics and cellars to the Nazis so that they can go haul them off to concentration camps and pay those people off with, with blood money. You have to take like all of that emotion that you feel about all those different things bound up together. That's how people felt about tax collectors. They were despised. They were hated. They were seen as subhuman. And that was Zacchaeus' life, right? He had more money than he could ever spend, but he had no one to spend it with. Rome paid him handsomely, but he had no, everyone uh, hated him. And we can see that everyone hated him based on kind of how this story 
you know, pans out. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Last week, similar situation. There was a blind beggar and everyone was in front of him. So he's looking at, at, well, he can't see, but there's all of these people and he hears electricity in the crowd. He hears commotion, but everyone is in front of him and he is in the back and he is completely cut off from what's happening. That's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus can see, but he's short enough. You would think, you know, you'd think that people would let the shorter people stand in front because you can see over the top of their head and taller people would stand in the back. Everyone hated Zacchaeus so much that they said, even though you're short and you could stand right in front of me and I, it wouldn't compromise my viewing at all. I still want you behind me because I hate you and I don't want to, to see you. I don't want to know that you are here. And to add even more reason, this, this might explain uh, why Zacchaeus, you know, how he came to be the person that he was, you know, is that uh, some scholars think based on the language here that it's not just saying that, that Zacchaeus was a short person, he was small in stature, but actually that he had a physical abnormality of some kind. He might have suffered from dwarfism, uh, you know, he's a little person or uh, might have suffered from kyphosis that he was like hunched over and his, his back, you know, was, was not, you know, he couldn't stand up straight. And so he was kind of branded by society as a person who has a deformity, uh, which would have led to ridicule and ostracism. You're weird. You're different. You have a disability. I don't know if you're contagious or not. Keep your distance away from me. And that was Zacchaeus's life. Everyone hated him. Everyone was grossed out by him. Had more money than he could spend. He just had no one, uh, no, no one loved him. No one accepted him. No one cared about him at all. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So here's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, I mean, if he's nothing else, he's resourceful, right? So you could kind of imagine, um, you know, Anyone else with his life, if there, if anyone else who was born with a disability or a deformity of some kind would just kind of just accept it, right? Everyone is repulsed by me. Everyone hates me. Or, or even if they don't hate me, they're repulsed by me. They ignore me. That just is my lot in life. I'm just going to stay out of the way, suffer in silence, in isolation, but not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus... Again, for everything else about him, he's a go-getter, right? He's like, if everyone is going to shun me anyway because I'm short or because I uh, have a disability, uh, if they're going to hate me anyway, then I might as well exploit them and get rich off of them because I don't have anything to lose. I don't have any social capital to, to, to lose, so I might as well uh, you know, take material wealth for myself at the expense of uh, my social capital. So he's kind of standing there. He does a quick analysis of the you know, of Jesus's trajectory and his path. He runs ahead. He climbs up into the tree. It's worth noticing that, you know, this is not something a dignified person would do in the ancient world. You know, kids climb trees for fun, but grownups don't climb trees unless it like, unless you're being chased by like a bear or a lion, right? Like you, you grownups and rich people climb trees when they're desperate. I need to get up in that tree because I'm going to get mauled down here on the ground. So you climb a tree when you're desperate. You climb a tree when you realize you have no other options, no other hope, when, when you're, you're in a state of desperation. And Jesus recognizes that this is the posture of Zacchaeus's heart and his desire. He's desperate. He's humble. He recognizes his own need. 
Verse 5, Jesus came to that place. He looked up and he said, Zacchaeus. Quite possibly one of the first times Zacchaeus has heard someone call him by name, validate his existence, humanize him, speak to him, make eye contact with him. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Spent his whole life being overlooked, ignored, people looking past him, not acknowledging him. As soon as he became a tax collector, it went from being ignored to being hated to being resented. And here's Jesus saying, Zacchaeus, I, I want to share a meal with you. I want to come into your house. I don't think you're gross. I don't think you're weird. I want to publicly identify with you. Everyone that can see me, I want to be seen with Zacchaeus. I want to be associated with him. If you think highly of me, if you have any interest in me, you need to know that Zacchaeus and I are friends. I don't hate him. I'm not going to be cold toward him. I am identifying with Zacchaeus. Right? Everyone, uh, everyone in, the, in the crowd, you know, hated Zacchaeus, kept their distance from Zacchaeus, didn't want to catch whatever Zacchaeus might have had. Jesus says, I am with him. I identify with, I draw near to, I care about, I love sinners and outcasts, losers, right? People uh, that, that everyone else hates. That's who I'm drawn to. That's who I love. If you ever feel like an outsider, if you ever feel like an outcast, if you ever feel isolated or alone, that's the kind of person that Jesus is magnetically drawn to. That He stops what He's doing to speak to you and care about you. Jesus wants to step in and invade your life and be with you because you are the kind of person that Jesus loves and cares about. So Zacchaeus hurries, verse 6, Zacchaeus hurries and comes down the tree and receives Jesus joyfully. Right? Jesus recognizes, or Zacchaeus recognizes that Jesus is offering him free grace. I want to be with you. I want to identify with you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to accomplish anything. You, you just have to receive it. And Zacchaeus receives it joyfully and excitedly. Which is the pattern of what it looks like when sinners encounter Jesus and encounter the free grace that Jesus offers them. Right? When, when a person sees God for who He really is, as unimaginably holy, when they see themselves for who they really are, as, as a broken sinner in a state of desperation, when they see Jesus as He really is, as, as a merciful Savior who is drawn near to them when no one else will, when a person rightly understands God and sin and Christ, the only, the only reaction that can come from those dominoes falling is, is love and joy and to be excited and to be grateful and to receive Jesus. Zacchaeus sees the good news of the gospel. He receives it. He celebrates. He rejoices. But not everyone sees it and rejoices. Verse 7, when they saw it, the crowd standing around, when they saw it, they grumbled. It's a word we see a lot in the Old Testament to describe faithless Israel as they're wandering in the desert, grumbling, 
resenting God, thinking that they know better than God, upset that God would have the audacity to do something different than they would want him to do. They grumbled. The crowd here grumbles. He's gone. This man has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Don't they? Doesn't Jesus know who this guy is? I can't believe that he would associate with someone like that, with people like that. They see this over and over and over in the book of Luke. The crowd resenting Jesus for associating with sinners. Everyone, everyone, the crowd in the Gospel of Luke, they love the idea of Jesus, right? They love, so they love the idea of, of Jesus who, uh, you know, whips up bread and food out of thin air and feeds it to people. The idea of Jesus who's a charismatic, compelling public speaker that they could just listen to for hours on end. They love the idea of Jesus who heals their diseases and kind of gives them uh, you know, what they want. But then the reality of Jesus, which is a person who associates with people that they do not like and that they don't want to be associated with, that offends them. They're scandalized at the thought of the... Re- right? They love the idea of Jesus. They're scandalized at the reality of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to charge you for it. Free grace. I am associating with you. And the crowd can't stand it. So, so, this, so the, the way that the crowd responds is, is, uh, is an interesting kind of case study in the nature of salvation, right? Jesus' grace to Zacchaeus is entirely and utterly free, right? I'm coming to your house. I'm going to spend time with you. But it's very costly to Jesus. In order for Jesus to associate with Zacchaeus, he has to put his reputation on the line. He has to take all of the social capital that he has and put that at risk. Jesus has to take the reproach that formerly belonged to Zacchaeus and he has to kind of take that onto himself, invite that onto himself in order to identify with Zacchaeus. So in the, in the transaction that is uh, the gospel of Christ, God's grace through Jesus is free for the sinner to receive and enjoy without cost, but it's incredibly costly to Jesus. It costs him his reputation. It costs him his comfort. Ultimately, it costs him his life. The debt that Jesus has to pay in order to accomplish my salvation and your salvation was more than we could ever comprehend. It's free for us to receive it by faith, but it's costly for Jesus as he dies on the cross. One scholar, you know, drew that parallel and they said, Zacchaeus could come down from the tree because Jesus went up on a tree. Jesus dies on the cross for sinners so that sinners like Zacchaeus can come down out of hiding, out of shame, out of reproach, out of guilt, out of isolation. Come with me, identify with me, I will save you and make you whole. Everyone grumbles about that though. And, the, and this is interesting, right? The response, like when, when Jesus extends free grace to someone, the response, how you respond to that is very telling about what's going on in your heart. It's very telling about what's going on in your life. It's very telling about, you know, it, it's indicative of your theology, what you think about God. It's indicative of your anthropology, what you think about yourself and humanity. It's indicative of your harmardiology, what you think about sin. It's indicative of your 
soteriology, what you think about salvation, right? Uh, How you respond to the grace of God is very telling of all of these things. Do you respond by rejoicing, right? Receiving and rejoicing like Zacchaeus? Or do you respond by grumbling and judging and resenting like the, like the crowd? Imagine you're, imagine you're in, uh, college. Imagine you're in college, grad school, whatever. You're in way over your head. You, uh, you're taking a class. It's too hard. Like you, you, against the advice of your guidance counselor, you got into a class that was too hard for you. You're struggling, trying your best, studying hours every day, all nighters in the library. Friends are partying, playing video games, eating pizza, drinking beer. You're hitting the books all semester long, studying. No matter how hard you try, you're studying. See the professor in his office hours. No matter, you hire a private tutor. No matter what you try, you're falling behind. You're failing the class. You're going to have to retake it. The last day of the semester rolls around. The dean of the college or department or whatever walks in and says, you know, we had a, we had a, we had a clerical error. We had a computer glitch. Our data got hacked. We got hacked. Our data got erased. Everyone in the class, we don't know what grades anyone got on any assignments all semester long. So we're just going to give everyone an A. Like we could either get, we could either give no one any credit for this past semester. We think that would be unfair to some of you, or we can just give everyone an A and just say, you know, go on, go on and kind of, you know, enjoy your summer. So that's what we're going to do. Everyone gets an A. Think of how you'd feel in that scenario, right? This weight off of your shoulders, you're failing. You're going to have to retake it. You had no idea, even if you were going to retake it, how you'd pass at that time. And now you just, you know, you pass. Now imagine another scenario, same, sim, you know, same class, right? difficult class, a lot of work, a lot of studying, all-nighters in the library, only this time you're crushing it. And like you're just, you know, all of the effort that you're putting in, it's paying off. It's the hardest class you've ever taken. You're working harder than you ever have in any other class, but you're doing better than you've ever done before. And you've got a solid A going in, but you look around and everyone else is coasting, right? Everyone else is one, one by one realizing that they're failing, they're going to fail, Screw it. You know, we're not going to be, we're not going to be here. We're, we're going to be here taking this again next semester anyway. So we might as well, people are skipping class. And you come to the last day of class, you're set to receive an A. Most of the people in the class are set to receive an F because they've been blowing off their responsibilities all semester. Same dean walks in with the same news. Computer failure, lost all of our records, everyone gets an A. And you think how you would feel then as everyone else high fives and kind of, you know, snickers that they pulled a fast one and they, that they got away with something and you kind of were, were defrauded of all of the work that you put in. Right? When you, when you encounter the grace of God, do you recognize yourself as being in need of it? And therefore you rejoice? And you're not that concerned if other people are being treated better than they deserve to be treated because you recognize that you personally are being treated better than you deserve to be treated. So you praise God for his mercy. Or when you encounter the grace of God, do you presume that you don't need it? Only everyone else does, but not me. So you grumble, you resent, 
You think that you're the only one that deserves God's favor and God's love. And so the prospect of God's favor and love being diluted and given to the masses of undeserving people is, is loathsome. It, 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 you know, is sickening. Zacchaeus receives grace from Jesus and rejoices. The crowd resents the grace of Jesus and they become bitter. So the question for us is, how do we respond when we encounter God's grace? Does it prompt us to be glad that we've been forgiven, reconciled to God, assured of our salvation for all of eternity? Or does it prompt us to become bitter and resentful and self-righteousness? The answer to the question of how do you respond when you encounter the grace of God is very telling about what's going on in your heart, how you view God, yourself, your sin, and your own salvation. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. It's not clear whether, you know, you know it's not clear whether Zacchaeus says this right here uh, immediately under the, the sycamore tree or whether he says it later that night uh, after dinner at his house. What is clear is that he says it after Jesus draws near to him after Jesus calls him by name, after Jesus publicly identifies with him and says, I am with this guy, I'm going to eat with him. It's not done as a a cause or as a precursor. So this is some sort of works-based righteousness. I'm going to give away my money so that Jesus will love me and identify with me. This is a response to the grace of God, not a a cause uh, for the grace of God, which is important because um, it's dangerous. There's rocks on either side, right? It's dangerous to understand our good works as something that causes the grace of God. We kind of fall into works righteousness, religious self-righteousness and pride. God loves me because of who I am and because of what I've done. But if we, if we kind of adopt this uh, cheap grace mentality that says, God's going to save me by his grace and nothing is required of me. No life change, no repentance, no living a new life that glorifies God and loves my neighbor. That's, that's unhealthy as well. Zacchaeus understands that salvation is free, given to him without merit. But salvation is costly and that it involves life change. And now that God has saved him by grace, God is now free to make any demand on Zacchaeus that he wants. For the, for the rest of his life, Zacchaeus is forever indebted to God. Which is tough, you know, it's, that's tough news for us to hear as Americans, right? We, we love the uh, free grace, we love that idea. Sure, by all means, treat me better than I deserve to be treated. Give me something I don't deserve. I'd be happy to take that. But the idea that I need to obey you, the idea that I need to submit to you as, as my authority, as the Lord of my life, even if it's costly, don't know about that, don't know if I, if I like that. And Zacchaeus' decision here, make no mistake about it, was incredibly costly. Half of my goods, and, and if I've defrauded, you know, and if I've, let's do some math, right? I was, I was a math major for... About a half a semester before I 
and then had to, had to drop out and, and uh, change it to something else. But I still enjoy math. So Zacchaeus is a rich man. So let's say he's worth $10 million. To me, that's rich. Right? I'm barely worth half that. So I... Kidding. Uh, no, so let's say Zacchaeus is worth $10 million. Use round numbers, $10 million. So the first thing he says is, uh, well, uh, is, is, you know, half of everything that I have, I'm going to give it to the poor. So right now, lopped off $5 million right off of his net worth right away. And then he says, anything that I've, so, so then we have to kind of determine anything that I've defrauded, I'm going to pay it back fourfold. So, so of the $10 million that Zacchaeus had, what, uh, what percentage of that, what of that would have been ill-gotten gains? And so if we take just a conservative estimate and say, of Zacchaeus's $10 million estate, $1 million of it was ill-gotten. $1 million of it had been stolen. $9 million was legitimate, salary, bonus, whatever, one million was stolen. Well, if that's, if that's, again, that's a conservative estimate. Well, what Zacchaeus just said is five million dollars out of it right, right away. And then of that, of the five million that I have left, I'm going to pay back one million at a rate of fourfold. So that's four. So he just, he just lopped off. If we're being conservative, he just lopped off 90% of his net worth like that. Realistically, it's probably more than that. It's probably closer to 97, 98, 99%. He probably went from being $10 million in the bank account to having nothing. Probably went from, you know, having the, you know, a security blanket with generational wealth, right? Kind of sleeping with the peace at night of knowing that his kids and his grandkids, you know, worst case scenario, they'll have a place to live. They'll have food to eat. They'll be able to go to college, Summer home at the beach, right? Expensive cars, you know, country club membership. All of that is all gone. I mean, it decreases his wealth at a minimum of about 90%, probably closer. I mean, I, I used to raise money full-time for a living. I've seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of generosity, a lot of contributions of various capacities. I've seen people give a lot of their income. Uh, I've seen a lot of people give a, a sub- substantial chunk of their net worth. I've never seen anything close to what Zacchaeus does here with one stroke of the pen. And it's not like what he's doing, it's entirely voluntary. Here's what's interesting about Zacchaeus and his, uh, his, his charity here is that the Old Testament, there's two standards for restitution for how you should pay someone back if you have taken advantage of them, stolen something from them, right? The first one you can read about in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 15, and Numbers chapter 5, verse 5 through 7. So those are kind of two places to go look. Uh, And basically the rate is 20%, right? If you steal something, take advantage of someone, uh, you know, if you kind of defraud someone, if you then realize what you did, and you voluntarily go to them, confess what you did and said it was wrong, give back what you took, then you owe that plus 20%. That's like the, the, rate, the, the, the rate for restitution in the Old Testament. If you confess it and, and make it right. But then there's another level that you can read about in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, or uh, 2 Samuel verse 12, or 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Um, another level that is, that is what it, it's 400%. So it's not give back what you took plus a fifth. It's give back what you took times four. 
And this is specifically for people who, uh, they're, they're, you know, there's no mention made of confession, no mention made of restitution. Uh, it, it's, it's speaking specifically to people who take something and then they kill it. You know, if you take an animal and you kill it, uh, or if you take an animal and you go and sell it and you're trying to get away with it. It seems like the, the, the Old Testament is seeming to say, don't steal, because if you do, you'll owe back more than you stole. But if you do steal, be honest about it. Confess, make it right, pay back what, what you have to, with, you know, add a fifth, add an additional 20%, what you should never, ever do. And the most severe penalty is reserved for stealing something and then trying to get away with it. Because if you get caught, then it's really not in your best interest. Well, Zacchaeus is voluntarily confessing and owning up to it and saying, I'm going to make this right, which would seem to indicate that he qualifies for the less harsh level of 120% instead of the more harsh level of 400%. And yet he is willingly, voluntarily saying, I am happy. I'm happy to pay the most onerous you know, penalties that can be opposed on me. I'd be happy to, to, you know, pay 400% rather than 120% because, because the grace of, because God has been gracious to me. The, the grace of God has come into my life. It's changed me. It's produced fruit in me. And now it's changed the way that I view everything. It's changed the way I view God. It's changed the way I view money. It's changed the way I view other people. I, I used to view God as, uh, you know, this, uh, as, as an authority that was constantly trying to make demands on my life and asking things of me. And I did not have any need for him at all because I didn't have any need for any authority other than myself. I used to view money as the source of all comfort. The, 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 the greatest end that there ever is in life is to get more money and have more money and use money to have what I want. I used to view my neighbor as people who are, as, as you know, means to an end. Obstacles in my way between where I am and where I want to be. People who make demands on me. Drive too slow in front of me. Right? Don't do what I want. Right? Make me wear a mask. Don't wear a mask even though I want them to. Right? There, there are people who don't do or act like I want to. and they're in, right? So that, that, that's who God is, is an authority I don't want. It's what money is, is my God and the greatest thing in the world. And that's who my neighbors are, are people that are in my way. And he says, when, when God's grace invades my heart, when God is kind to me, when God is gracious with me, all of a sudden God has changed from this like this onerous, authority that I want nothing to do with to my savior who I love and cherish and enjoy. And I gladly obey money is changed from this godlike substance that I will obtain at any means necessary and use to make myself happy to, to um, a tool that I can use to bless others. And meet their needs. And my neighbors are changed from these burdensome, means to an end, obstacle in my way from me getting what I want, to fellow image bearers who have been created in the image of God. God loves them and cares about them. And has called me to love them and care for them. So Zacchaeus willingly takes on right this, this higher level of, of restitution rate. Because he realizes that everything he has is God's, and so he is happy to give it away. 
in response to how God has been gracious with him. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. Right? So he's reiterating what he said so far. I love Zacchaeus. I'm identifying with Zacchaeus. I'm associating with him. However you feel about Zacchaeus, that's on me too. Any reproach that you have for Zacchaeus, that's on me too. Zacchaeus, right? Whether you like it or not, Zacchaeus has received salvation. So get used to the idea of being near him, spending time with him, because you're either going to be spending all of eternity with Zacchaeus, or you'll be spending all of eternity in hell. So, So salvation has come to Zacchaeus. If you have salvation, then you are a co-inheritor of salvation with him. All of the salvation and blessing and redemption, all of the promises that were made to Abraham, they belong to Zacchaeus now, right? If you brag about how you're a son of Abraham and how that makes you special and you can trace your lineage back to Abraham, so can Zacchaeus. He's a member of the covenant community. He's been saved by his, from his sin. He's a friend of mine. He's a friend of God's. Jesus gives to Zacchaeus the highest level of affirmation that he could give to anyone. Jesus gives to broken sinners the highest level of affirmation that he could give to anyone. No matter what you've done, how bad you've been, how broken you are, Jesus has these words of affirmation for you if you turn from your sin and trust in him. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. is the 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 most concise uh stating of jesus's mission here in his uh, earthly ministry that we see in the whole bible 12 words jesus came to seek it like not not to give you what you want not to meet your felt needs not to make you feel better uh, about who you are not to become the poster child of your cause or your party, not to do your bidding according to your preferences. Jesus came to seek and save lost people. That's his whole mission. That's his whole agenda. Lots of things that Jesus loves and that he's glad to see happening in the world. Righteousness, morality, strong families, Stable marriages, feeding the poor, fighting against racism and injustice. There are a lot of things that Jesus loves and that he wants to see more of in the world. But there is one singular thing that Jesus came to do. And that's to seek and save the lost. There's one single mission that Jesus has given to his church. And that's to make disciples. To help people be reconciled to God through believing the gospel. And then to teach them how to walk with God through discipling them. That's the mission Jesus gave to the church. That's, what, that's why we're here. That's what we do. 
That's outright. Jesus' priority is to seek and save the lost. Our priority is to join with him in that cause and to make disciples so that lost people can be reconciled to God. We, we serve a God who, like Zacchaeus, or like Jesus did with Zacchaeus, who draws near to sinners and outcasts and people who are lonely and hurting. And we serve a God who then calls us to respond by turning from our sin, trusting in him, loving Him, walking in obedience, and costly discipleship, and sacrificial generosity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, what, a, what a glorious privilege it is to have the God of the universe take notice of us, draw near to us, call us by name, just like Jesus did with Zacchaeus. Lord, we recognize that we've sinned against God, we've sinned against our neighbors, we are in a position of desperation just like Zacchaeus was. We need you to save us. And Lord, we pray that as we experience your grace like Zacchaeus did, that you would empower us to respond rightly by turning from our sin, trusting in You, obeying You, loving You, loving our neighbors with kindness and generosity. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.